turn to Luke chapter 23 with me. We're going to read from Luke chapter 23 and verses 1 through 5. Luke chapter 23, we'll start in verse 1. 
Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. We're going to pray together, and as we do, you may be seated. We're going to... um, we're going to remember this morning, we always like to remember one of our missionaries, and this morning we're remembering Patty Morris. Patty serves in France, and she's been there for many years. She serves in the, kind of helping with the finances of uh, one of the ministries there, and then she also leads ladies' Bible studies and shares the gospel with many in her community and is a part of her local church there. And so uh, we want to pray and for her and remember her this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for all of who you are and all of what you do and what you have done and what you will do. You are good and righteous and true and just. You rescued us when we were running away from you. We were blind. We were fighting against you, even with the good gifts that you gave us, and you opened our eyes to the truth. You, you transformed our hearts. You poured out your love towards us, and even today when we still uh, our hearts wander and we're slow to hear the truth, we're slow to love you as we ought, and yet you continue to pursue us with love and patience and mercy, and it overflows day by day and moment by moment, and, and yet we're slow even to believe how deep your goodness goes. And so help us today, help us to see you in all of your glory, all of your righteousness, all of your beauty, all of your wisdom that has planned all that would be, that governed the universe from when you spoke it into existence to, to eternity future, you will rule all things as the good and righteous and beautiful king. And so we worship you this morning. We worship you that you've made us safe in Christ for those who trust him. You've united us with him. You've given us everything that we could need. You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You've given us joy and hope and peace. And you said that you would never leave us or forsake us. And so, Lord, please impress those things on our hearts. Help us to actually sense what we know is true, to feel what we know is true, that that we have this hope, that we have an anchor for our souls in Christ. Lord, give us that peace and joy this morning. We ask that through your Holy Spirit you would do that as your word is preached, Lord. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that you would build up and strengthen your church. Um, Lord, we know that, that even as we are killed all day long for the sake of your name. Around the world, your people are persecuted, and yet you advance your kingdom through that. You spread the truth through that. And so we pray even for our enemies, Lord, those that hate us, that hate what we're doing here, that you would rescue them, open their eyes, soften their hearts, cause them to trust Christ and have eternal life in him. Lord, we pray for the authorities that are in power here and around the world, that you would give them wisdom, that you would help believers to have wisdom of how to, to live in a way that brings honor to your name, even in the midst of unjust governments and 
Lord, we remember also Patty. Um, Lord, bless her ministry as she has served so many years there and brings that to an end. Give her endurance. Give her strength and encouragement. May she be a blessing to the church there. Um, Lord, give her the blessing of seeing fruit even in these last months that she would see um, the ladies she's ministering to. Some of them, may they come to believe and bow to Christ as king. Um, And Lord, we ask that you would bless the time of preaching that we're about to hear, Lord. Soften our hearts, prepare us, humble us, help us to submit so that we might have joy in you this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Lord, I join with Andrew in just recognizing that um, for the believers in this room, our hearts are slow um, to, to look to you. Our hearts are slow to trust you. And so um, just on behalf of every, every Jesus follower in this room, um, I call out to our own hearts, oh, oh, our souls, put your hope in God, um, our help, our rock, and our salvation. Um, teach us how to praise him even more through your word this morning. We just thank you that when it goes forth, it doesn't come back void. We pray all these things because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. Amen. Today in Luke chapter 23, we'll see Christ being accused, but we will see that there is no guilt deserving death in him. When I was a young child, maybe eight or ten years old, uh, I would collect soda bottles and take them to the local store and get some money for them, five, ten, fifteen cents a piece, and then buy some candy. And one day I was at this local store, just a small little store, and I brought my bottles in and I set them on the counter and, and the guy, the man says, okay, so go ahead and go choose your candy and come on back up. And I was back there and I was taking a long time. I couldn't decide what to get. And at one point he just yells at me, get out of here, you're taking too long, just get out of here. And he takes my bottles and into the back and just disappears. So I stood there for a moment. I thought, well, I need to leave. Before I did, I took a piece of bazooka bubble gum and stuck it in my pocket. And then I left. I went home and told my mom and dad that the man at the store was uh, mean to me and that he kicked me out and wouldn't give me the money for the bottles, wouldn't let me buy the candy, but I did not tell them about the bazooka bubblegum. That piece of gum weighed on my heart for a long time. Just a little piece of gum, I was guilty of theft. And I went home and told my parents and my dad, who was a Los Angeles policeman, marched me down to the store and explained to the man how he should be kinder to neighborhood kids and allow them to buy their candy, and I was able to go and get my candy, and we went home, and I had the guilt of that piece of bubble gum on my soul. The worst thing I had done to that point in my life, and the guilt over that gum haunted me. Guilt over things that you have done can ruin your day, every day. A constant reminder of what you have done wrong. But also when you get accused of guilt when you're innocent, that can also ruin you. Our knee-jerk reaction is to defend ourselves and very loudly, vociferously defend ourselves and try to convince everyone else of how innocent we are. But cosmically, we are all guilty of sinning against a holy God. 
And unless and until you admit it, your guilt will never be taken away. The triune God, the one who is blissfully, eternally in fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect glory, acted on our behalf. The perfect Father sent the perfect Son, sovereign, sinless, pure holiness, to die for guilty sinners in need of a Savior. God's loving kindness and mercy. It moves him to act on our behalf, to alleviate the misery that sin brings. Scripture displays this huge view of the grace of God in Christ. Grace greater than all of our sin. And when you know that grace, when you come to know Christ, you're united with Christ. You, you have a new life. You, you've been freed from your sins. You, you know God now. You, you love Him. You, you enjoy Him due to what Christ did at the cross in your place. You know how a sinner can be made right with God because Jesus makes you his own and brings you into his family and adopts you and unites you with him and makes you holy and makes you want to serve him with a grateful heart. And you know it happened by grace through faith in Christ and you are united with Christ and your life, as the Bible says, is hidden with Christ in God and and you have this new identity and now you know Christ is indwelling me and covering me and protecting me and leading me and guiding me and providing for me. All because Jesus died for me. All because of the substitutionary atonement the shed blood of Christ. And the passage we're in today, Luke 23, we're going to look at verses 1 to 25, it tells us in part how Jesus got there, how he got to the cross. And we're picking up the story at the false accusation of Christ by depraved humans that were hellbound on killing him who came to save. And there's a spoiler alert. You all know what it is. This is a spoiler alert. This is about Christ being accused on the way to predetermined death. Backstory helps you appreciate. As a child, I I never knew where my parents and grandparents came from. When you first meet your parents, you just let them hold you and feed you and, you know, cuddle you and what have you. And, And you don't even sometimes know, like, as you get going in life, you don't know, like, where your grandparents came from and how they came maybe to California, or how they came even to America. And, and then you learn their story, and you know the family history, and it helps you appreciate what they went through and the choices they made. But how much more important is the backstory of the substitutionary atonement and how Jesus got to the cross and how the perfect sinless Savior came to die? The one who made the universe. The one that hung the stars and... Perfect God who had come to earth to die for his fallen sinful creatures in need of rescue. Christ had to go through the cross. Had to do it. Because you were guilty. I was guilty. We are guilty. It makes us thankful for the depths of divine love that would determine to deliver those who believe. Today in this passage in Luke 23, we focus on Christ's accusation 
and how there was no guilt in him deserving death. None at all. On Good Friday, we will be in Luke 23 as well and seeing Christ fearless in crucifixion and seeing that there were two thieves crucified on either side of him, one with no fear of God and one with no fear of death. On Easter, we'll be in Luke 24 and we'll see Christ's resurrection and how it is no idle tale, how it is to be believed and you must bank your life upon it. It will cause believers to love Jesus and the gospel more. It will cause unbelievers to be faced with the gospel truth of Christ crucified and, and risen. The perfect, sinless Savior died for guilty sinners. That the guiltless, sinless one died for guilt-ridden sinners. Thieves and liars and people who consistently choose to go against a holy God. What we're seeing today is in three scenes. They all involve Pilate and Jesus. Herod gets brought into the second scene. But it's familiar. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's familiar. And I want to challenge you to, to not see this as a rerun. It's so easy for us to say, oh, I already know that, or I've got some, my favorite parts I, I hope we look at, but don't treat it like a rerun. Pray for fresh eyes on familiar truth and rehearse the glorious gospel truth of Christ crucified and risen and reigning and returning. What we see today, these three scenes come after the triumphal entry. In Luke 19, we read that he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives and the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they, they quoted Psalm 118. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What we see today comes after that. And it comes after Peter's betrayal and Jesus' arrest. It comes after Jesus being mocked and beaten it comes after the elders of the people and the chief priests and the, the scribes brought Jesus before the Jewish council and they became convinced of his guilt and they said, what further need do we have of witnesses? He deserves to die. And this brings us up to scene one. In Luke 23, begins at verse one, where Pilate is going to now try Jesus. It just begins this way. The chapter begins then. The narrative continues on. The linear sequence of events continues to happen. Luke is very precise. And he says the whole company of them arose and brought him to Pilate, ostensibly to have him put him to death, to condemn him to death. The seat of the Roman government in Judea it was in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, but Pilate was in Jerusalem to maintain order during the festival of Passover. Rome had two main judicial systems. There were jury courts that would try cases in, involving formal state law, but there were also informal police courts led by a magistrate. This is the kind of trial that Jesus had before Pilate. It was the norm in Roman provinces. It, the local governor would hear the charges and examine the accused and pronounce a sentence. This, this trial is that kind of trial. The Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, knew that they did not have the right to administer capital punishment, and so they had to bring Jesus before Pilate. Pilate was in charge of collecting taxes. Pilate was in charge of keeping the peace, and, and his relations with the Jews was quite rocky. 
It was not good. But here he is sympathetic to them. It looks like he's actually being kind to them in some way. And the people begin to accuse Jesus before Pilate. And here's what they say. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is Christ a king. He's disturbing the peace by misleading us. He's fomenting and fostering rebellion. He's advocating not paying taxes. He's forbidding tribute tax to Caesar. Caesar's the the title for the Roman emperor. He's forbidding the poll tax. That's what it was. Payment made by a people to another, implying we are submissive to you. We are dependent upon you. And then they say he, he claimed to be a king. That would be a political threat to Rome. He saying that he is Christ. Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew and Aramaic. It means one who has been anointed. It it, it means anointed, and then it became to mean anointed one, and then the anointed one, and then in the intertestamental period, it developed into this idea of the hoped for, promised anointed one, and that's the meaning that was put on Jesus. It essentially became his last name. Jesus Christ, Jesus, the promised, hoped for, anointed one. You might ask, what's the beef with him? What's the big beef with Jesus? Well, he did opposite of the accusations. They're all lies. They're saying he is challenging Roman authority. They hated him. They wanted him dead. So they're going to Pilate and, and having him condemn him to death. And Pilate now, because there's a challenge to Roman authority, he's going to be forced to do something. Weak a leader as Pilate was, he's going to be forced to do something. And Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you have said so. Literally, you have said so. And the Greek is more ambiguous than some translations would suggest. Some translations have Jesus saying, yes, it is as you say. It may be a qualified affirmation, but either way, Pilate looks at Jesus and, and what he says is, this guy's a, not a threat to me. He is not a political threat. And Pilate says to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in him. Like, why are you wasting my time? Why did you bring him to me? Literally, I find no reason for an accusation. It's going to be the first of several claims by Pilate that Jesus is innocent. And he makes efforts to release him. There's six times in this passage it happens. But they're urgent. They're insistent. And they say, no, no, he stirs up the people. He teaches throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And as soon as Pilate hears Galilee, he's like, whoa, what, what? Galilee? He's a Galilean? They're urgent to condemn him. This is human depravity run amok. He's subverting the nation, the summary charge. It shows the hatred and the depths of human depravity. And we all know what hatred in the depths of human depravity can take us, where that can take you. It's like the bully that bullies incessantly. I remember when I was a kid, there was a bully in school, and he would always come and pick on me, and I didn't really know how to fight. And I was smaller than him, but I had a friend who was bigger than him, and he came to my defense. But here, they're just incessantly going after Jesus, and it only gets worse. And so scene two, you have Pilate bringing Herod in. As soon as he hears that, wait, he's a Galilean? 
that's Herod's jurisdiction. I'm sending him to Herod. Now, at that moment, Herod was also in Jerusalem at that moment in time. So here is Pilate, the opportunist politician, or maybe the chicken politician. Maybe he's trying to avoid you know, personal liability for a difficult decision, or maybe he's seeking Herod's expert advice. We don't really know. All we know is that Herod was in Jerusalem for Passover, and he sends him to Herod. Who's Herod? Herod Antipas, ruled as Tetrarch. He's one of four joint rulers over Roman provinces, and he ruled for 35 years over Galilee from the death of his father Herod the Great in AD 4 to AD 39. And what he was mostly was a curious spectator of Jesus' ministry who watched him from a distance. He claimed to be a faithful Jew, just like his father Herod the Great. Like his father, his coins did not bear the image of the emperor. He said, I'm a faithful Jew, and he faithfully attended the Jewish festivals in Jerusalem. And so he sees Jesus, and he's glad. He actually rejoices because he wanted to see him for a long time. He'd been watching. He'd been hearing. But here's why he wanted to see him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wanted his own private miracle show. He wanted to see Jesus for selfish reasons. Herod was happy, but he wasn't holy. He had taken his brother's wife. He had had John the Baptist beheaded. Romans even thought he was a bad guy. And he questions Jesus at some length. He, he interrogates, like a police interrogation, and Jesus makes no answer. So there's this persistent questioning from Herod, and Jesus doesn't answer. Like Isaiah 53.7, they predict the silence of the suffering servant before his oppressors, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Ancient writers would speak of the wisdom of silence before false accusations, saying there is an untimely rebuke, and there is the person wise enough to keep silent. But the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, vigorous, full pitch, high volume. This is body-shaking rage that is filling them. Herod and his soldiers get in on the action and they treat Jesus with contempt and they mock him. They put splendid clothing on him and send him back to Pilate. In Greek, that word splendid, it means bright. It's the word lampros. It's where we get the word lamp. It's clothing that is white or even regal, purple robe maybe even used by Roman soldiers or the kind of robe that a candidate for office would, would wear. And here is Jesus being ridiculed as candidate for king of the Jews. And it is ridiculous to them. They are mocking Jesus' claim to be king. They are hating his kingship. In that very day, Verse 12 tells us that very day, Herod and Pilate become friends. That up to that point, they were mortal enemies. They were at enmity with one another. You always have to be careful when mortal enemies become friends. Something heinous is afoot when mortal enemies become friends. Pilate governed the land of Herod's father, and Herod wanted to rule that land. Jewish philosopher Philo mentions that Pilate had offended the Jews by setting up these golden shields inscribed with, with his patrons' names in Herod's palace. 
This would be like if you put a picture of Herod up in the palace and then threw darts at it and kept the darts in his face. Herod and his three brothers brought charges against Pilate before the emperor Tiberius, ordered him to remove those golden shields, which he actually did. But incidents like these made Pilate and Herod enemies and rivals, very bitter enemies and rivals. But they become friends because they both hated Jesus. Pilate then calls the chief priests and the scribes and the rulers back together. The sequence of events keeps moving on here. And he says to them, basically, you've wasted my time. Why are you doing this? You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Pilate basically says, I find no guilt in him. And he says, and neither did Herod. It wasted both our times. He sent him back to us. And then he said this, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. This, this word nothing is emphatic here. Nothing, he says, did I find in this man by way of cause. Literally, he has done nothing. He just makes further claim that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is perfect of any crime worthy of death. And so he says, I will, I'll just punish him and release him. He's going to whip him, scourge. And the, the kind of whipping he was going to get would convince him not to disturb the peace. People would watch and some would like what they saw. Remember back in 1987, I was in Irian Jaya, Indonesia. I was working with tribal people in the highlands and Planes would come in once a week, a little light airplane aircraft would come in once a week and bring supplies and mail and what have you, and the Indonesian government would be in charge. There, 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 were, there was an outpost of, of soldiers uh, there for the, from the Indonesian army, and they would make the, uh, the tribal people unload the planes and really treat them badly. And there was this one day, we were standing there watching, and I was there for a month, and we watched it, and one day... There was a man trying to unload, and he dropped something, and he was having trouble, and the Indonesian soldiers started beating him unmercifully. And I could only stand back and watch. It was, it was horrendous to watch someone just do that to another human being, and you couldn't do anything about it. They had, they had guns. They would watch Jesus be whipped. They would cheer. Now, there was a custom to release a prisoner at Passover. So Pilate's thinking, okay, I'll let him go. This is why the crowds cry out, no, no, release Barabbas, not Jesus. Custom to release the prisoner. Pilate was obligated to fulfill, to release one prisoner for them at the feast. And some of you don't have a verse 17 in your Bible. Some of you do have a verse 17 that's in parentheses. And uh, my Bible, the translation I'm preaching from, the, the English Standard Version, ESV, uh, doesn't have a verse 17. And you might wonder, it, it's a scribal edition. It's a parenthetical note that explains the custom. And it's explained elsewhere in the Gospels. But I love it when there's a parenthetical note in a Bible that says this, this verse shouldn't really be here. And here's why I like it, because 
We speak of the authority of Scripture. We, we speak of the, the perfection of Scripture. And when someone who's translating the Bible can say, by the way, this, this verse isn't in the oldest of the manuscripts, what it's saying is, we don't have confidence in this one, but we have utmost confidence in every other verse that doesn't have brackets around it, which is the majority of the Bible. So verse 17, though, is just explaining a custom and... Gideon then throws us into scene three, verse 18. They all cry out together. Away with this man. Away with him. Take him away. It's a pejorative in context. They're looking down upon Jesus. They're treating Jesus with contempt. They're basically saying, take this trash out and release to us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Isn't it ironic that Jesus is accused of doing the very thing that Barabbas did. First century Palestine was a hotbed for revolutionary activity in movements in the years leading up to the Jewish revolt of AD 66 to 74. And Josephus describes a variety of insurrectionists and robbers, and the most vicious were the Sicarii, who mingled with the crowds during the festivals, and they would stab Roman sympathizers with daggers that they hid underneath their, their robes. And Barabbas' crimes suggest this kind of activity, and he might have, even, might have even been an associate of the two criminals crucified with Jesus. The crying out, release to us a murderer and kill Jesus. And so Pilate says one more time to them, because he wants to release Jesus, and we have this battle of the wills, people versus Pilate. Pilate wants to release Jesus because he believes him innocent. But they keep shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The cruelest form of punishment imaginable practiced by the Romans reserved for the worst crimes committed by the worst criminals. Roman historian Cicero called it a cruel and disgusting penalty. Josephus called it the worst of deaths. And so a third time, Verse 22, a third time he says to them, why? And then he says, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. There you have the claim of innocence once again. Literally no cause of death I find in him. He's trying to bring some sense of justice. He believed Jesus had committed nothing deserving death and he says, okay, I'm going to punish him. That, that verb, uh, punish here, is a mild, mild word. It means to discipline or to teach. It's a euphemism for a beating. Uh, it's a, like the idiom, I'm going to teach him a lesson. Romans dished out three kinds of beatings. There was this first light beating that was a warning, basically, just don't misbehave anymore. But the third one was most severe. It was usually given before they execute you. What Pilate intends to do here is give Jesus a light beating and release him. Now later, Jesus would receive the worst beating, the harshest beating, before crucifixion. And this is what Pilate's going to do. But the people won't let it happen. They're urgent. They're, they're demanding with loud cries, they're shrieking at the top of their lungs, that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. A sad note on the human condition. Pilate decides then, okay, their demand will be granted. 
The crowds prevailed. Pilate gives in. He figures, hey, killing one Galilean teacher was better than facing a riot. I'm just going to do this. And so justice loses out because he doesn't, doesn't follow his own verdict, even though he's convinced of Jesus' innocence. Such is the depth of human depravity. Let's the guilty go free and sinfully sentences the innocent to death. So he releases Barabbas, the man who'd been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. That's a key phrase, over to their will. So he exchanges the innocent for the guilty. Pilate's a week later, and he did not find him guilty. Three times he says there's no guilt, but he wants to release him. But everyone's playing hot potato here. And he, he gives them over to the people's will. He's appeasing humans. It always leads to ruin. The fear of man brings a snare. And here's Pilate the pragmatist. More interested in maintaining power than justice. And he caves under pressure. And he hands Jesus over to their will. And who does Luke put the major blame on? The Jewish nation. Especially the leaders. Look at Acts 3. If you look over in Acts 3, you'll notice something. This is Peter's second sermon comes right after the lame beggar is healed and this healed man is is with Peter and John and the people are astounded. They don't know what's going on. And they run together to Solomon's portico. Peter sees what's happening. He he speaks to the people. And he says this, the God of Abraham, verse 13, Acts 3.13, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of it. Unless you think that Pilate and Herod get off scot-free, just turn over to Acts chapter 4. and have Believers, Peter and John, had been thrown in jail and they get released and they go to their friends and they tell them what had happened and then all the people lift their voices to God and they say this, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Acts 4.26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They release a murderer. They decide to murder the Savior who came to free them from sin. There's this battle of the wills. They release to the will of the people, of the crowds. And here is Jesus, though. And we just read it. He died by the will of the Father. He died by his own will. They did not know how much guilt they were heaping up on themselves. And they also did not know it was according to God's plan. Jesus knew the script. He kept saying over and over to his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem to die and then rise on the third day. He said it over and over again. I think this is why you see Jesus displaying compassion here, power under control. He allowed everything. He accepted everything because it was predetermined before the foundation of the world. Nothing could stop the predetermined plan of God 
to have Jesus Christ die for the sins of the world. Not even someone claiming that he was sinless. Not even someone claiming that there is no sin in him worthy of death. I remember when I was young, we would watch the Apollo space missions on TV. And takeoff and reentry was always the big deal. Like, will they make it or not? Or will they disintegrate? You know, will they live or die? And with the cross, there, there was no command center anxiety. Will he make it or not? God was not waiting around, worried in heaven, wringing his hands with bated breath, waiting to see if Jesus would do what he came to do. What you have in this passage is not only sinful man, but you've got a sovereign plan. Jesus in John 10 said, I lay down my life on my own initiative and I take it up. I have power to take it up on my own initiative. And the contrast in this passage is on Christ's perfection and our guilt, mankind's guilt. All the aggregate pieces of bubble gum that we have stolen and thievery and lying and cheating and killing and blaspheming and all the rest. Christ's perfection is startling in its scope. As I read in Acts 3, they denied the holy and righteous one. Perfect. Hebrews 4 says he is without sin. Hebrews 7 says it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, perfectly other, innocent, unstained, perfection, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, the sinless, perfect, sovereign, guiltless, holy, eternal, creator of the universe, the only one who could die in our place, the holy one of God, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And the death he died... He died in our place. We did everything worthy of death. He did nothing worthy of death. And he took the death we deserved. Sometimes people would like to presume, what would I have done if I had been there? Let me tell you what every one of us would have done. We would have called for his death. We would not have defended him. God used the greatest evil ever perpetrated, the cross, to accomplish the greatest good that has ever been accomplished. To take care of mankind's guilt. To glorify himself by taking care of our guilt. Uh, we read very clearly in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. You might be the best citizen in the room. You might have the best behavior. You might have got straight A's. There is none righteous, not one. Nahum 1.3 says, the Lord will by no means... Leave the guilty unpunished. Jesus declared, For judgment I came into this world so that the blind may see and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees asked him, Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. James says, If you break the law at one point, you're guilty of all. One piece of bubble gum will send you to hell. And we spend all of our energy drowning our guilt, 
in food and drugs and alcohol and we're denying our guilt and we're deflecting our guilt on others. You're why I did what I did. John MacArthur in The Vanishing Conscience said this, Our culture has declared war on guilt. The very concept is considered medieval, obsolete, unproductive. People who trouble themselves with feelings of personal guilt are usually referred to those who are tasked with boosting their self-image. No one is supposed to feel guilty. Society encourages sin, but it will not tolerate the guilt sin produces. Everyone's guilty. You might remember a really old movie with Al Pacino in it called Justice for All. Here is a lawyer that is defending a guilty client. And at one point, he's in the courtroom and he had enough, and he just says this. He yells out, my client is guilty. He's scum. He deserves to rot. And the judge says, you are out of order. And he says, no, this court is out of order. You're all out of order. Psychologist Eric Fromm said, it is indeed amazing that in this fundamentally irreligious culture of ours, the sense of guilt should be so widespread and deeply rooted as it is. R.C. Sproul wrote in, Can I Have Joy in My Life? said, knowing one's sins are forgiven produces tremendous relief. All the burden of guilt is gone because guilt is fundamentally a depressant. It squelches any feeling of well-being. It robs us of peace. It torments our souls. It's probably the most significant barrier to real joy. And when our guilt is removed, joy floods our souls. Guilt's like a toothache. It tells you something's wrong. And it drives you to get help. And when treated, you experience joy. But how can the guilty so racked with guilt, go free. In Exodus 34, the Lord proclaims his name, who he is and what he does, to Moses. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. We rejoice in those words, but we do not want to read the next phrase in the sentence. But who will by no means clear the guilty? In Luke 13, Jesus is told of Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate was a sick, twisted man. And Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All are under sin. All are guilty. But if Jesus... Even Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. What evil has he done? Pilate found no sin in him worthy of death because there was no sin in him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and still they put him to death. There was no sin in him worthy of death. He was the only one worthy to pay the penalty that we deserved. The penalty that... that that condemned us to death. The people 
people got what they wanted, though they didn't really know what they wanted. Right? Some of you, you're just working so hard every day thinking you need something that is missing in your life. Jesus died to give them what they needed. Jesus, no guilt deserving death. Us, all guilt deserving death. Jesus, the only one who could die for the guilty. Us, but for Christ's sacrifice, we would die for our guilt. Because Jesus is perfect and we are sinful. Sin has its effects. It creates guilt. That's why you feel bad about your sins. Some of you have cauterized hearts that become so callous you don't feel it anymore. But in Leviticus 5 and 6, uh, you see in the Old Testament economy the guilt offering. It was to handle the guilt of the people because everyone has guilt they deal with because of their sin. And guilt creates this, if it, if it goes the right way, you feel remorse. And you feel contrition and you, you even fear punishment. But you also know your sin affects other people. We always want to blame someone else for what we do and blame them for doing something, but we don't realize how often our sin affects other people. But the guilt offering in the Old Testament dealt with both things. It solved both of sin's effects. If someone made an offering, they could walk away forgiven, and then they would give restitution alongside the offering. Uh, There was a value put on the damage they caused, and the guilty person would repay plus 20%. And it dealt with three relationships. It dealt with your relationship between you and God, between yourself and your conscience, and between you and other people. And the guilt offering, though, was meant to point us to Jesus' perfect sacrifice, Jesus' offering. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in his full and final sacrifice for sin, Hebrews 10.22 says that your conscience is sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ clear conscience only by the blood of Christ the cross is the outward sign that our guilt is dealt with but then you have as a believer the inner witness of the spirit of God that we were made guiltless by Jesus' perfect guilt offering because Jesus pays for your sin and he doesn't just pay then to cleanse you from your sin but he pays for the effects of your sin on other people And he fixes the effects. You see in the New Testament, people so radically changed by the grace of God in Christ, by the love of Jesus, that they make above and beyond restitution for the ways they've treated other people. Luke 19, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone or anything, I restore it fourfold. Because Jesus changes your heart such that you want to do what is right. But what you realize very quickly is you can't fix everything. It's all on Christ. Jesus also works in believers' hearts to restore what sin has broken. And one day he will return and fix everything. Everything that is broken. He'll make everything perfect. He won't take and add 20%. He will make everything 100% new. Revelation 21.5, I am making all things new. Wow. God deals with the penalty of sin. God deals with the effects of sin upon your conscience and others. He is the only one that can truly do this. It's not just a piece of gum. There's so much more, right? So much more that has caused our guilt. It's not just a piece of gum. 
But if it was just a piece of gum, we would all still be guilty. What can wash away your sin? Romans 5 tells us that when we were still weak, when we were still sinners, when we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. What does guilt do to you? It corrodes your soul. You can't drown it in food or drugs or alcohol or people. You can't deny it. You can't run away from it. It hounds you. You can't deflect it and put it on someone else. It can only be dissolved in the blood of Jesus Christ. In Acts 3, after Peter indicts them for what they have done to Jesus, he didn't leave them hanging. He called for action. In Acts 3.17, he says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. That's what Paul said about himself. He acted, ignorance and, acted ignorantly in unbelief. That doesn't let you off the hook. It just tells the truth about when you don't know the truth. Here's how you act. He says, You acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Your sin will be punished in you in hell, or it was punished in Christ at the cross. If you don't know Christ, you need to turn to Christ. Run to Christ. Cling to Christ. He is the author and perfecter of faith. Look to him. Believe in him. Turn to him. Christ will hold on to you. Christ will not reject you. Christ will hold on to you today and forever. If you're a believer and you're racked by guilt on a daily basis and you think about little pieces of gum or worse, much worse, cling to Christ who holds you fast. Even as you still deal with the struggle and the guilt of your sin, keep looking to Christ he is your life. When I was younger, the day before my annual teeth cleaning, I would, would always do what I knew I needed to do every day. I would floss. My, glut, my bloody gums were always a dead giveaway to the dentist. Someone's been flossing the day before. But even when I did brush and floss, every year I still went back and got the deep cleaning done. It's interesting that at Easter time, you see it on calendar and you think, oh, I should think about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus right now. And it's good to be reminded, but we should be thinking about it every single day. That's the life of a Christian because Christ cleanses the believer forever. Daily living, this is what you need, daily living in light of the cleansing that lasts forever. We would be hopeless but for Christ. Our guilt would remain. We'd still be in our sins. In Christ there is forgiveness. There is freedom. Jesus said, "If you, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Christ did what Adam could not. Christ did what we 
made like Adam, represented by Adam, sunk in Adam, condemned in Adam, could not. He did what he did due to the love with which he loved us from before the foundation of the world. And therein lies our hope. And we praise you, Lord God. We praise the perfect, sinless Savior who died for guilty sinners. Thank you that the guiltless, sinless one died for me. He gave himself for my sins to deliver me from this present evil age by the will of God. Thank you, Lord, that the sinless one had to die so that the guilty could go free and glorify your grace forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to a table that deals with the very serious matters of which we have spoken today. Bread and a cup that reminds us the Lord's table reminds us of the Lord's sacrifice that he made at the cross for our guilt, for our sin, for our life. This is for believers. If you love Jesus, this is for you. Jesus gave us this to remember him by. We're not to do it in an unworthy manner. So if you're an unbeliever, this is not for you. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you've yielded your life to him, this is for you. The worthy manner of doing this is not, well, I've been great this week or I haven't sinned so much this week. It's I'm trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross and I'm confessing my sins and I'm walking in repentance and I love the Lord because he first loved me and I'm remembering what he did for me and this is my life. I remember every day that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. He's saying, I'm going to die in your place. He says, do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Signifying new life in Christ. Shed blood for us to take away our guilt. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Fill in some blanks. Reverently, worshipfully, loving the Lord who first loved you in remembrance of him and what he has done. Lord, what a gift of grace that we could come to this table with joy and not with sorrow. Come to this table rejoicing in you who has done everything for us, we who did everything against you. And it's solely by your grace and your mercy and your love that we could even believe and then walk in obedience to you on, on, a, on a daily basis that it's not us, it's, it's Christ in us, our hope of glory. And we love you, Lord Jesus. Pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and join as we close singing the last verse and chorus of the goodness of Jesus? Come and find your hope now in Jesus. He is all.
One more time, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, rest in his goodness, believe in his death in your place at the cross and that he was buried and rose on the third day for the life of all who will believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if you're a believer, don't live racked with guilt every day. If you're serious about following Christ and you're not playing with sin. If you're playing with sin, repent of your sins. But if you are serious about following Christ and you are racked with guilt because of what you have done in your life, rest in the blood of Christ who cleanses you from sin. Ask him to cleanse your heart and your mind and fix your heart and mind upon him. Jesus can do that. We're going to close with Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. And by the way, fellowship with each other. Don't run off. Fellowship with each other. Go to a class. Go to a Bible class. Go to a home group tonight or this week. Come to midweek. Uh, come to a Good Friday service with us on Friday at 5 o'clock. But be with the people of God as we open up the word and pray and sing God's praises. Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the storm, silence.